From KCLU, this is The 101, a podcast where we journey up and down Highway 101 along California's central and south coast, sharing stories and conversations. From Oxnard to Santa Barbara to Point Conception and beyond. I'm your host, Michelle Loxton. It's season five, a season about discovery. This year marks 100 years since the Honda Point Naval Disaster, the largest peacetime loss of U.S. Navy ships. The catastrophic accident happened just north of the Santa Barbara Channel, along the shore where Vandenberg Space Force Base is today. Where $13 million worth of U.S. Navy ships were destroyed, and 23 sailors unfortunately lost their lives in a matter of 10 minutes. For a then 16-year-old sailor, his first assignment was on board one of the doomed ships. We heard sirens up ahead. That's the first inkling we had of it. A lot of sirens. We thought at that time that it was maybe it was, could have been a man overboard, but it wasn't. Remnants of that disaster are scattered along the ocean floor. These shipwrecks and others have fascinated many. It's the long-lost treasures they possibly hold, the filling in of gaps in history books they reveal, or the closure their discovery brings to descendants. It's the detective work, the forensic work of trying to determine the cause of loss, what happened in those last moments. But what about the shipwrecks we don't know about? A new National Marine Sanctuary along California's central coast is in the works, a process done by the federal government. If it's approved, it could provide an opportunity for the discovery of many more shipwrecks. That's because with sanctuary status comes money for exploration. In this episode of The 101, we're taking a journey out into the over 5,000 square miles of proposed sanctuary territory to learn what's out there, what we know about and what we don't. We'll hear from some shipwreck survivors, and we'll do it all with the help of a shipwreck hunter. He says there could be 140 shipwrecks out there just waiting to be discovered. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is The 101. I'm Michelle Loxton. Every investigation needs a detective. Like I said, I refer to myself sometimes as a shipwreck detective. I love the detective work. I love the challenge to get answers. Robert Schwimmer's official title is the West Coast Regional Maritime Heritage Coordinator for NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. NOAA stands for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Schwimmer's love of ships and shipwrecks is in his blood. Literally. One, I'm a descendant of Robert Fulton, the steamboat inventor. Fulton, if you're not steeped in maritime history, was the first person to successfully build a steam-powered boat. 
steamboats revolutionized travel and trade around the 1800s, because before that, boats mostly had to rely on currents. But I digress. Back to our modern-day ship enthusiast. When I was scuba diving, I dove my first shipwreck, and I was hooked. And it's become a passion. And Schwimmer isn't exaggerating. He maintains several shipwreck databases along U.S. coasts and has thousands of books about ships and shipwrecks. Probably one of the larger privately owned maritime libraries. With our shipwreck detective by our side, let's go back 100 years to the decisions that led to the Honda Point disaster, specifically to September 8th, 1923. It was Fleet Week in San Francisco, a tradition that continues to this day where military ships dock in major cities so the public can interact with them and their crews. That 1923 Fleet Week also featured demonstrations of Navy shipping prowess. Military leadership of that time wanted to test some of the ships, destroyers specifically, to see if they and the crew were ready for high-speed battle operations. To do that, a high-endurance test run was planned. Schwimmer reads from a publication written about the demonstration. The order was given to make a high-speed endurance run from San Francisco to their home port in San Diego. The destroyers were to run 20 knots and maintain radio silence with the exception of the flagship. 14 destroyers set out in close formation. It was a foggy night and that was already causing problems. As they approached the Channel Islands off the coast of Santa Barbara, one of the destroyers actually came across a passenger steamer that had run aground near one of the islands. They abandoned their test run to help those passengers, but the other destroyers continued on. The commander of the squadron, Captain Edward Watson, felt positive about the mission. Here's Schwimmer again reading from a book written about the disaster that was published in 1960. And I quote, I feel that we have two factors in our favor. The wind and the sea are pushing us along, and according to the coast pilot, we have a slight assist from the Japanese current, end quote. Visibility worsened as the journey continued. At 9 p.m. that night, it was described as dark, the sky overcast, and the sea was moderate with white caps and a heavy ground swell. And then suddenly, as the destroyers plunged into a heavy layer of fog and visibility dropped to zero, A grating sound was heard, followed by the smashing crash of a head-on collision. The quartermaster leaped from and pulled the whistle and sounded four blasts, which is a danger signal. Gene Bruce was on one of those ships, the USS Chauncey. I joined the Navy at the age of 15. Born in Albuquerque in 1907, Bruce moved to the San Fernando Valley just before joining the Navy. After training, and soon after his 16th birthday, he was given his first assignment on board the USS Chauncey, one of the destroyers on the test run that fateful night. In 1923, my uh, 16th birthday, four months later is when the tragedy happened. Bruce is now deceased, but his experience was recorded by Robert Schwimmer. 
Bruce described how the ships were playing follow the leader and that the front ship was doing all the navigating. He was on ship number four or five. He couldn't quite remember. We heard sirens up ahead. That's the first inkling we had of it. A lot of sirens. We thought at that time that it was maybe it was, could have been a man overboard, but it wasn't. Something had gone very wrong with the navigation, and the ships traveling at high speed ran into the towering rocks along the shore at Honda Point, north of Santa Barbara. One after the other, ships started crashing and piling up on the rocks. Our ship was washed up by waves and stuff up against rocks. Bruce said he and his fellow crew started climbing out onto the rocks and up onto the bluff. Fortunately, no one was hurt on his destroyer, but nearby, another destroyer called the USS Young had flipped on its side and started taking on water as sailors were trapped inside. Bruce described what he saw. So we were trying to go astern between this big rock and the Young. And some waves, stuff like surf, washed us up against the Young. She had turned over, so her propellers were still going. They uh, cut into the side of our ship. Twenty lives were lost on the USS Young and three aboard another ship. Jean Bruce served a total of four years in the Navy. He lived to the age of 98, dying in 2005. The Honda Point disaster was seen as a big embarrassment for the Navy, as seven ships were destroyed and two were left stranded. And official explanations about why it happened remain murky to this day. On the 100th anniversary of the disaster, September 8th, This year, Vandenberg Space Force Base held a quiet remembrance event. Flags across the base were flown at half-staff, and a trumpet played just after 9pm, the time the disaster occurred. The 75th anniversary event in 1998 was more public. That's what you're hearing here. A trumpet played at the base as a helicopter flew over, dropping a wreath into the ocean where the accident occurred. Today, remnants of that disaster are still visible at Honda Point, or Point Pedernales, as it's commonly called today. Wreckage, or artefacts from the seven destroyed ships, are visible in the intertidal zone and likely deep under the water on the ocean floor. And it's not just ships from that disaster that rest here. This is the final resting place of many ships over the years. It certainly is the largest Central Coast graveyard. The largest and perhaps the most well-known. But there is so much still to be discovered in the much larger proposed marine sanctuary, which, if approved in the summer of next year, would stretch 134 miles along California's central coastline and make up 5,600 square miles of protected ocean space. Out in that vast ocean space are potentially over 100 lost shipwrecks waiting to be found. 
And these types of discoveries become possible if the Biden administration designates the space as a marine sanctuary. How? Well, firstly, there's money. Funding resources such as staff in research vessels, creating opportunities for NOAA to partner with state, federal, private sector, and indigenous community partners in the discovery and survey of shipwrecks. Secondly, there's protection. Federal protection for maritime heritage resources from disturbance, salvage, looting of artifacts, and so future generations can enjoy. Money and protection means the filling in of so many gaps in history books. It's important to continue the inventory. You know, consider like going down the Washington Mall in Washington, D.C., and each of the buildings, you will assess those and, and look at the criteria. Are they a national register or national landmark? Do they rise to that level? The same thing underwater, any historic property, we need to assess those. It's our mandate. Descendants might also get closure about what happened to their ancestors. So what's out there to be found? Some exploration has already been done, but really only a little. Only 18 shipwrecks are known or located in this vast proposed sanctuary space. One of the most interesting shipwrecks of those 18 to Detective Schwimmer is a private oil tanker called the Montebello that ran into a Japanese sub. Let me take you back in time again. This time to 1941, World War II. Richard Quincy, who was also interviewed years later by Robert Schwimmer, was part of the crew on board the Montebello. And we knew there was a submarine out there because one of the company ships coming down from San Francisco had sighted one and had turned back. That's a Japanese submarine he's talking about. We knew that they were, they were out there. Uh, by that time, of course, we were, we were at sea and there wasn't much we could do. We had to keep going. Quincy had been put on watch. Looking out into the nighttime ocean, he saw a dark outline in the water, the submarine they'd been warned about. And just as I pointed it where it was, where there was a little flash of light on it, like somebody turned a flashlight on and off. That was the flash of a torpedo being fired. I think what was worrisome about that is it seemed like forever before we heard an explosion on the ship. And it was that wait between there. Is it going to hit here where we are or is it going to go over us? Because the torpedo traveled at a speed slow enough to track it visually, Quincy could actually watch as it approached and eventually pierced the ship's hull. As the crew scrambled for lifeboats, Quincy's boat got stuck. Attached to the sinking tanker, sailors couldn't release the lifeboat. It was taking them down with the ship. Quincy, luckily, found an axe to free them. But they weren't out of danger. In the meantime, they're shooting us with a deck gun. So <laughs> that, was, that was more exciting than, than the torpedo. Miraculously, Quincy and all his fellow crew members survived. They watched as the Montebello sank in front of them. It went, that stern went up in the air and, and right straight up. It was just, it was, uh, it was a fantastic sight and it was light enough then to really see it. 
they figure about 150 feet in the air and then just slowly run out of sight. It was later determined that the torpedo had just missed the oil storage tank. And even more lucky, there was apparently another torpedo fired that missed the tanker altogether. Shipwreck detective Robert Schwimmer dived the Montebello wreckage in 2003. You're hearing some sound from that dive and expedition. Here's the moment where they find the area where the torpedo hit. We're now turning uh, towards starboard and the break in the ship. This is the uh, torpedo impact zone. And here's Schwimmer describing today what that dive unearthed. They are so fortunate if hit and struck 10 feet further out on the ship, we probably would have killed 38 crewmen. And I actually got to pass through that opening where the torpedo impact zone was. So I was, I was able to kind of solve that mystery and say, man, you guys are really lucky. They also determined that the oil was no longer a threat as it had probably dissipated over the decades. For many years, Richard Quincy mostly kept his story of survival to himself. When he talked about it, he said no one believed him. Some even called him a liar. The discovery of the shipwreck proved he was telling the truth. So that is just one of the 18 shipwrecks that have been explored in the proposed marine sanctuary. But Schwimmer, through his research, says he has a list of 140 more waiting to be found. For our final shipwreck story, let's focus on just one of those. A passenger cargo ship called the Roanoke. This time, we go back to 1916. The vessel had departed San Francisco for Chile. The cargo was 600 tons of commercial explosives, dynamite. Because of this, no passengers were on board, but there were 48 crew members. Here's Detective Schwimmer again reading from the official wreck report from the National Archives. Roanoke ran into heavy seas. The ship rolled and took on a heavy list, attempting to make sure at Port San Luis the vessel foundered. The crew tried desperately to get off in the lifeboats, but there were difficulties. Most of the lifeboats were smashed in the sinking of the ship. Of the 48, 45 crew members lost their lives. One lifeboat drifted close to shore, heading for the rocks. It was spotted by a lookout at the lighthouse. The tragic loss of life is one of the reasons Robert Schwimmer wants to find this shipwreck. To me, it's a really tragic story, but I think the potential uh, for closure of family descendants is important. I have a list of all the names lost in the wreck report of this official publication. And I, I think it, like some of the other shipwrecks I've been involved with in their discoveries, um, we've connected the descendants and it's, it's brought them closure. Uh, so that to me would be a priority site. They don't know precisely where the ship went down. It's going to require an expedition and some detective work. For our shipwreck hunter, the case remains open.
This proposed marine sanctuary's name is the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary, named for the Native American tribe with a long history in this region. One of the branches of that tribe, the Northern Chumash Tribal Council, actually submitted the sanctuary nomination in 2015 and have been closely involved, along with other tribes and branches, in the designation process. The sanctuary space holds great spiritual significance. So yes, the sanctuary isn't just about shipwreck hunting. It would work to protect cultural and indigenous sites, but also marine ecosystems like kelp forests and rock reefs by prohibiting new offshore oil and gas development or boats from dumping sewage, for example. Certain things won't change that much, though, like fishing. This National Marine Sanctuary would also almost fill in a big gap of unprotected ocean space along the California coast. There are already a number of National Marine Sanctuaries along our coast, but this area has been left unprotected. But there's a catch in all of this. All this potential discovery does, though, depend on the sanctuary getting its official designation. Currently, draft designation documents are in the public comment period. There are a few more steps NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries has to go through until everything becomes official. They have set an end target of the summer of 2024. But there's a presidential election in 2024. And if the process becomes delayed for some reason, that could mean it could stretch into possibly a new administration. That new administration could put everything on hold to see if a new sanctuary even aligns with their agenda. So we have on our hands a race against the clock. Head over to kclu.org slash podcast where you'll find photos of the many shipwrecks we talked about. There's also shipwreck survivors Richard Quincy and Jean Bruce. Thank you to our shipwreck detective Robert Schwimmer for all the archival and research audio he provided for this episode. The 101 is produced by KCLU Public Radio. We are NPR for the California coast, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Elisa Barber. I'm Michelle Loxton, the host and creator of The 101. If you have an idea or a story for one of our next episodes, email me at podcast at kclu.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about it today and don't forget to subscribe. I'd also love it if you'd rate or review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps others find our podcast. This is The 101. Thanks for listening.